Well, as Devin taught so well last week, we are in a series in the book of Exodus, and he opened up by instructing us that Exodus is the continuation of the story in Genesis, a story that is amazing and stunning and perplexing, and the glorious story of God's deliverance for his people, the people that he created and the people that he loves. And as you read through Exodus, I hope you've taken some time to read through Exodus, you, you see God's divine fingerprints all over the narrative. Commentators all describe Exodus in the same way. It's an epic tale. It's an epic story of fire and sand and wind and water. And the adventure takes place under this hot desert sun just beyond the shadow of great pyramids. And there are two mighty nations, the nation of Israel, the nation of Egypt, led by two great men, Moses, the liberating savior and hero, and Pharaoh, the enslaving villain. And almost every scene in Exodus really is an adventuresome masterpiece. A baby in a basket, the burning bush, the river of blood and other plagues, the angel of death, the crossing of the Red Sea, the manna in the wilderness, water from the rock, the thunder and lightning of the mountains, Ten Commandments, pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, the golden calf and the glory of God in the tabernacle. And that is Exodus. And if that doesn't stir your interest, um, there's no fiction book out there that's going to compare what we're going to read in this amazing book. More importantly, though, for us as believers, Exodus is a shadow of the glorious gospel that becomes fully revealed in Jesus Christ. Oh, I want you to see that as we go through the book of Exodus. And in studying Exodus, our hope is that we do. We do see page after page the story and the plan of God's redemption, the shadow of his son, Jesus Christ, the deliverance that he has promised, and that we experience the transforming power of his word as we study. To read Exodus is to encounter God's mercy, to encounter his justice, to encounter his holiness, to encounter his glory, to encounter the God who rules in sovereign power and who saves the people of his covenant. That is the book of Exodus. In chapter 1, this grand story begins with despair and discouragement with hopelessness and pain and suffering and anguish and grief as the people of God, as Israel is enslaved to the Egyptians. Israel, the people of God, have been living in Egypt for more than 400 years. And over that time, God's blessed them. They've multiplied, they've prospered, and and they have experienced the, the goodness of God. But as they have, the more they experienced God's goodness, the more ruthless Pharaoh became, the more ruthless they were treated by the Egyptians and enslaved by the Egyptians. And 
rather than expel them from the, co- the country, he just, he just enslaves them and he puts cruel taskmasters over them and he treats them ruthlessly and their lives become bitter and hard and they are working constantly serving Pharaoh. And the more they're oppressed, the more they multiply, the, the worse it gets, the more painful it gets. And finally, finally it gets to the place where Pharaoh is so threatened by this group this people that he says, kill every male born child and throw them into the Nile River, the, the river that was, in essence, a god that the Egyptians worshipped, a river that they thought so highly of. And as we will see, soon see in, in, in later chapters, it is a river, river that they come to loathe because God comes to work. So chapter 1 ends the way it started, in despair. The last verse of chapter 1, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Chapter 1 ends the way it started, despair and hopelessness for a people who still have a memory of God's covenant promise to their forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, this promise that they would be the people of God, this promise that God had a land for them, a promise that after 400 years, where is that promise now? Where is that promise now? And understand that the Bible never states that Israel was sent into slavery because of some sin that they had caused God's judgment upon themselves, that they were being punished for something. No, they were simply sent there under God's perplexing and hidden and dark providence, a providence that makes no sense to Israel whatsoever. These days of darkness, though, are amazingly a part of God's plan to bless his people. So the title of this message is, What is God Up To? And we are going to be studying the continuation of this story in chapter 2. And that's where we begin to see God's plan, God's amazing plan unfold. Look with me in chapter 2. Now there are three parts to this story. Verses 1 through 10, which are... Part one, God's hidden providence. Part two, verses 11 through 22, God's hidden savior. And then part three, verses 23 and 25, God's promised salvation. So let's look at the first part. Chapter two, starting in verse one. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. 
And behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. As we see, the situation is, is dire. What are, what are Hebrew parents to do with their baby boys? It, it's, it's a short story that we've just read, but there's great emotion behind it. Consider Consider a mother carrying a child knowing this edict hangs over her head. Knowing this edict hangs over her son's head. What are Hebrew parents to do in this horrific climate of death that awaits their children? Egyptian soldiers most likely daily sweep through the town looking for baby boys. And after three months, the baby can no longer be hidden. And so... What does this mom do? Well, like any good mom, she wants to protect her child. And so she's resourceful and she's created. And ironically, in the providence of God, she actually obeys the edict. Because the the beginning words were that they were to cast, these in chapter one, cast into the Nile every one of these baby boys. Well, that's what she does. She does cast her son into the Nile. Now, she follows the letter of the law. She doesn't follow the spirit of the law, but she does follow the letter of the law. And at this moment in history, this is where God's hidden providence, hidden to who? Hidden to Israel. Israel does not see the providence of God. All Israel knows is that they're enslaved and they're under this edict to destroy their children. But in God's hidden providence at this moment in history, God's entire plan for triumphing over evil is riding down the Nile in a little papyrus basket. Now, the word basket here literally means ark. It's only used twice in Scripture in this particular manner, Noah's ark and this ark. So the word basket is is ark, and it is... It is the second time that this word is used, but both Noah and, and, and Moses passed through the deadly waters by riding in an ark, the vessel of their salvation. Again, you begin to see God's unfolding plan, God's hidden providence in this wonderful story. Another evidence of God's providence in this story, his hidden providence, is Pharaoh's daughter. She just happens to go down to the Nile on that day and she happens to be in the right place at the right time to see this basket, this ark, among the reeds in the water. And so what does she do? She discovers Moses. 
She rescues Moses, and eventually she brings Moses into her very household where he's going to be protected from the law that was intended to cause his death. In God's providence, Moses' sister is there watching. And she immediately comes and she offers Pharaoh's daughter she to have this woman, this one woman that she happens to know, nurse the baby, which happens to be Moses' mom who is going to be paid to care for her own child. Now, as I was reading this, I thought, okay, can you imagine Miriam running home? Mom, mom, you've got to come with me and meet Pharaoh's daughter. Seriously? The one who is a part of the family that wants to destroy my son. No, 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 mom. You've got to meet Pharaoh's daughter because I told her about you. And guess what? Moses is coming home. Now, we don't know what they named the baby. We know what she named the baby. But she gets to care for her own child. Now, think about the providence of God again. God is at work providentially again Moses's earliest years where is he he's home he's learning Hebrew history he's being shaped by Hebrew history he's being shaped by his parents he's being cared for by his parents he's getting to know his his older brother and his older sister who play a significant role in the future God's hidden providence it is a story that is amazing. Moses does not grow up as a slave. He grows up providentially as a son, safe and secure in Pharaoh's home. And just as in chapter one and, and again in chapter two, um, it, it's amazing how God uses these, and it's wonderful, God uses these, these women, the, the midwives, and now he, Pharaoh's, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, uh, Moses' mom, Moses' sister, uses these women to, to thwart an evil plan. All these things happen in God's hidden providence to fulfill his perfect plan of salvation for the people of God. From beginning to end, God's saving grace is at work. Philip Riken says this. He says, The story of Moses in the basket is a marvelous story of God working in history to triumph over evil. But it is not the whole story. Moses was a savior, but he was not the savior. Long after the exodus, the Israelites were still waiting for another savior to be born, a savior of whom Moses was only the prototype. Then a little child was born in Bethlehem, a child worthy of more glory than Moses. He was no ordinary child. He was the Son of God incarnate. Like Moses, the boy was given a name to match his identity. They called him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Like Moses, his Savior was born under a death sentence. Herod the Great, a tyrant as wicked as any of the pharaohs, was determined to put the newborn king to death. At first he tried to do it secretly, asking the wise men to tell him where Jesus was. And when that deadly plan failed, Herod ordered his soldiers openly to slaughter all the baby boys in Bethlehem. But in salvation, God triumphs over evil. So like Moses, Jesus was delivered from death. While the other babies were crushed by the engines of the state, the child who was born to save us all escaped to Egypt. 
In all these events, God was working out his plan down to the last detail for salvation is his work from beginning to end. What a, Moses is an amazing story, an amazing picture of what is about to come and what we have experienced. Deliverance from the oppression and slavery of sin. Every detail, every detail for salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. Your story, your salvation story is as detailed from beginning to end as the story of Moses and the story of Christ. Do you get that? Your story, every detail in the hidden providence of God. When you are not aware, when you are not looking, when you are not considering, when you are not thinking about it, God was at work. He was at work because he loves his creation. He's covenanted with his creation. He's promised and he does it for his glory. And so in the first section, we see in the birth of Moses, the hidden providence of God that not only is at work thousands of years in the past, but is at work today as well. Part two, the hidden Savior. Verse 11, one day Moses had grown up He went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and he looked that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Obviously. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water, filled their troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, who we'll later learn is called Jethro as well, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So now we jump ahead 36 years. Moses has grown up, and even though he's been raised in an Egyptian household, it's clear that he knows he is an Israelite, and there is obvious compassion for his people. He looks out and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. He says, one of his people. Now remember, Moses is writing this, so he's describing himself. And he says, I, I, I recognize, I identified with my people. I didn't identify primarily as an Egyptian. I identified 
as one who is a Hebrew. There's an obvious compassion in his heart for his people. And we see his first attempt at delivering his people. He strikes down this Egyptian overseer, this, this man who is treating the people of God, his people, cruelly and wickedly. And so he strikes them down. And from what I gather here, it looks like it's premeditated murder. Because he looks left and he looks right and he makes sure no one is around and then he strikes him down. Now, this is Moses' attempt at being a deliverer. It is, God has a plan for this man. God has a plan that, that this man, Moses, is going to be a deliverer. He's going to be a savior of the people of God. But Moses takes matters into his own hands. And he tries to be a deliverer. He tries to be a savior. And we learn, we learn more about that in actually in, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen just before he gets stoned, speaks about Moses. In verse 23, this is what Luke writes. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So Moses had this awareness that God had called him to something, as we learn in Acts. But he takes it under his own effort. And it doesn't work. It costs him dearly. God does not approve of Moses' attempt, but he uses it for his sovereign purposes. This hidden Savior is hidden to the people of God. Because look, in verse Verse 14, he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Moses has an awareness that God has done something. God is doing something, but these folks don't know. They're not aware that Moses is this savior, this deliverer. And so he is hidden from them. And so then Moses does what Moses needs to do because this costs him dearly. He is under threat of death. And, and understand, the, the, the Israelites, Moses killed an overseer. That does not go unnoticed. That doesn't just disappear off the scene. It would certainly get back to Pharaoh, which it did. And what would the result of that be? Well, he would treat the Israelites with even more contempt. He would treat them more severely. And so it's understandable who made you prince and judge over us. It's, more, it's understandable why they would reject Moses because he's made it harder for them. He's brought more pain upon them by killing this overseer and hiding him. So Moses flees. He tries to hide his sin and it doesn't work. And so he flees. And he goes to a desert area. He goes to a a wilderness area. He goes to Midian. And he shows up on the scene after, again, he's tried to intervene a second time with the Israelites. That didn't work. That was a failure. And he shows up in Midian and now... He intervenes again. And we begin to see this 
this hidden Savior, this hidden Deliverer, we begin to see what He's made of and, and who He is and the kind of heart that He has and the compassion. And, and this is just the, the preparation for what is going to happen, not soon, but years down the road. They want nothing to do with Him, so Moses leaves the area. But God's hidden providence is at work. Moses' future is hidden from all but God, who in his providence placed him in this desert for what is about to happen. He, he, again, he's intervening with the shepherds. He's intervening for these ladies. And he's acting as a deliverer. And at 40 years old, you know, Moses, Moses is finding himself not in the life that he had anticipated. He was an Egyptian prince. He was in the household of Pharaoh. He has this other identity as an Israelite. And he ends up in the wilderness. And he contentedly settles in Midian. But God has other plans for this quiet desert life. Because the story of Moses isn't about Moses. The story of Exodus really isn't about Moses. It's about God. It's about God who loves his people. It's about God who's made a promise to his people. It's about God who is faithful to keep his promise to his people. It's about God who delivers his people from the oppression of their horrible suffering and their horrible slavery. And so God has in his hidden providence rescued Moses. God in his hidden providence is beginning to prepare Moses for what he is going to do as the, as the savior of these people. And now in part three, we see God's promised salvation. Look with me in verse 23, of chapter two. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. All that has come before in chapter 1 and 2 really is a setup for these three verses here. The events of these two chapters are brought to conclusion in these three verses. The suffering of Israel continues on. It starts out, Moses writes in verse 23, during those many days. Israel had been suffering for more than 400 years. A savior is born, Moses. 40 years go by and nothing happens. A whole generation continues to experience the slavery of Egypt. Moses ends up in the desert in Midian. And what happens? Another 40 years goes by. And if you're an Israelite and you're thinking, there's some promise out there, you got to be thinking, what is God up to? Where is this promise going to come to pass? Is, is God really there? And, and we see in this verse that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they must have groaned for a long, long time. And listen, Israel has a history of groaning and complaining. That's their history. Groaning and complaining. Groaning and complaining. Groaning 
here groaning when the red, at the Red Sea saying, why did you take us out? We're just going to get slaughtered by the Egyptian army. We should have never left Egypt. We should go back to Egypt. Groaning when they couldn't find water. Groaning and complaining. That is the story, sadly, of Israel. But, but they do something right. Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. It began when Israel started to pray. Their prayers came up to God. God in his sovereignty, as we know, uses our prayers. And here is a shining example of that in verse 24. And I love the way this is written. And God heard. And God heard their groaning. And God heard. He hears our prayers. He hears us in our suffering. And he is not distant. He is not detached. But God hears. God heard. God is eager for us to pray. And he's eager to answer our prayers. He takes delight in answering our prayers. And God heard. And then he goes on to say, and God remembered his covenant. Now, when it says, and God remembered, it isn't as though God forgot. It wasn't like God just one day went, oh, the Israelites, darn, I forgot them. Oh, oh, is that them knocking on the door? No, God remembered his covenant. He keeps his covenant promises. A Savior's coming from God who will deliver his people from their slavery. And here we see, again, a shadow of Christ who delivered us from the slavery of sin. 2,000 years later, we are experiencing God's deliverance through Christ's suffering and Christ's sacrifice and Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. And we have become heirs of God's promise. The gospel guarantees our hope. And here we see that God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, that he would bless these people and he would rescue these people and that they would be his people and he would be their God. And the same is true for us, for nothing can separate us from the love of God. God heard, and God remembered. And then Moses writes, and God saw the people of Israel. I love that. God sees. God's not just distant and detached and unaware and blind to our trials, to their trials, to their suffering, to their groaning, to their slavery. And God is not blind to ours as well. He sees everything that we experience, every pain and every bit of suffering and heartache and fear and doubt and anguish and trouble and trials and discouragements and despairs. God sees it all. God sees it all. And often in the midst of our pain and our despair and our discouragement, we just think, God is not there. We just think, 
God has abandoned me. God has left the scene. Or God's just, just not interested. All those temptations run through our hearts. That's understandable in the midst of... As for us, I mean, these folks were 400 years, 40 more years, 40 more years of suffering. You know, sometimes our suffering is chronic and long. And we can feel as though God does not see. But it's clear He does. And God saw. But then He goes on to say, and He finishes with this, and God knew. He reveals Himself to His people because God's ultimate end game is for us to be in a relationship with Him, for us to fellowship with Him. Because ultimately, that's what brings him glory. God looked on them. This is, this is how it actually should read. God looked on them and made himself known to them. It says God knew. It means God made himself known to the people of God. He made himself known. And how does he do it? Well, he's going to do it through this man, this flawed man named Moses, who is their deliverer, who is their savior. God does all this in Exodus. He does all this in Moses. And ultimately, he does it in Christ for us, that we might know him and that we might fellowship with him, that we might love him, that we might serve him, that we might enjoy him, that we might be at peace with him, and we might glorify him as the Israelites were intended to do. God has done that for us. And that is what God is doing in us. And that's why Grace Church exists, that we might do these very things. Desmond Alexander says this, God does not remain safe and secure in some heavenly abode untouched by the sorrows of the world. God is not portrayed here as a typical monarch dealing with the issues through subordinates at some distance. God does not look at the suffering from the outside as through a window. God knows it from the inside. Yet, while God suffers with the people, God is not powerless in the face of it. I love it. God does suffer with us. The story of Exodus is all about a gracious God who sees everything and does something about it in a time frame that will most bless his people and bring glory to himself. Now that's, that's, that's a critical point that God does what he wants to do in our lives in a time frame that will most bless us and most glorify him. And as we study the book of Exodus, we, we're going to discover that the real hero of the story is God. God is the one who reveals himself to Moses as the great I am. God is the one who hears the cries of his people in bondage and takes pity on their suffering, raising up this deliverer to save them. God is the one who visits Egypt with plagues. God is the one who divides the Red Sea. God is the one who drowns Pharaoh's army. God is the one who provides bread from heaven. God is the one who provides water from the rock. God is the one who gives them this law and on the mountain and fills the tabernacle with his glory. And from beginning to end, God is at the center of Exodus. So as we read about this, this group of peoples, we read about this man named Moses, as we read about these incredible happenings and these, these stories that are adventuresome, as we read about all of this, it's all about God. 
And as you read through it, you, you see the hidden providences of God working behind the scenes for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. What can we learn from Exodus? Where, where, what can we learn from this amazing story? Where do you see God in your trials? Where do you see God in your sufferings? Where do you see God when you're experiencing pain and doubt and anguish and fear and despair? Is he distant or is he near? Listen, we, we are in an exodus now. You, you are walking through an exodus. An exodus in this world that oppresses us. Walking through an exodus where we are oppressed by our own sinful temptations, our own sinful tendencies, oppressed by the world around us that does not want anything to do with God, in fact, opposes God vehemently, hates God. We are, we are in an exodus. And we are, like the Israelites, before Moses comes, we're awaiting our Savior to come back. We're awaiting for God's Deliverance, his ultimate deliverance. And so is God distant or is he near to you? Well, two, two things I think we can take away from this story. Two lessons I think we can learn. The first one is this. Be patient with providence. Be patient with providence. Think about Job. Job was a blameless man who suffered extremely for a long time and never knew the reasons behind. We know the reasons because we can read the book of Job. But Job never knew. Jeremiah, Elijah, Paul, The thorn in his flesh, chronic sufferings, chronic trials. Be patient with God's providence. He's at work. And he's at work behind the scenes. He's at work for your good. He's at work for his glory. He's at work because he's there with you in your suffering. Because he's near. Be patient with God in providence. Secondly, pray rather than groan or complain. Pray. And they cried out for help. You know, what is God up to in Exodus? What he up, he's up to is this. He's going to fulfill his promise to deliver his people. They just need to be patient as we do when we suffer. That's what we can learn from this book. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the God of all providence. Whether it is good providence as we might define it, dark providence, hidden providence. Lord, you are the God who sees and you are the God who knows. 
And you are the God who is making himself known. Not only to your people in Exodus, but to us right now. Lord, we do want to know you. And so, Lord, as we walk through this world, help us to learn from your providence, learn from the times that we walk through. Help us to draw near to you. Help us to pray and cry out to you. Help us to rest in you as you have promised rest for the people of God. And Lord, may you do all this so that we can bring the glory to you that you deserve. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.